0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. LiUNA has pitched itself to the government as a partner in the resurrection of Hamilton's LRT project. LiUNA's international vice president, Joe Mancinelli, joins us to talk about that. Yesterday, conservative leader Aaron O'Toole faced questions involving his stance on abortion and Western alienation. We'll get some details and reaction. And a new StatsCan survey says the safety of any potential vaccine concerns an awful lot of Canadians. There's some really, really serious questions that need to be answered. We'll explain. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Public transit is still going to be a key issue. Everybody talks about public transit, the federal government, the provincial government, certainly municipal governments. And uh, is it going to be bus rapid transit? Is it going to be light rail transit? Uh, City seemed to be on track, excuse the bad pun, uh, for light rail transit until last December of course when then transportation minister Caroline Mulroney came into town and said that uh, the province was withdrawing support which means withdrawing money. Uh, And that caused a furor of of controversy as you might expect and uh, the province responded by putting a special task force together uh, from all local people in this area and at the end of their work they uh, basically recommended to the province that the province fund either light rail or bus rapid transit. And that's all we know at this stage. Well, there are those that uh, are just going to sit here and wait for the decision. Others are trying to be proactive about that. Among them, of course, is the Laborers International Union of North America. Uh, Joe Mancinelli is the International Vice President and Regional Manager for Central and Eastern Canada for LIUNA, a great Hamiltonian and a good friend of the program. Joe, thank you for joining us. Good to have you back on the show today.
1: Uh, thanks, Bill. Good to be with you.
0: Where are we on this? Joe, this has got to be one of the most confusing files, and this is going back years, but, I mean, let's, let's deal with the last six or seven months specifically. Uh, you were on the program, I think it was the day after the, the government made the announcement they were withdrawing, and you said this issue is not dead yet. You, you were going to keep fighting for this. Uh, we seem to be in a holding pattern right now. What's your read on this?
1: Well, you know, I think that uh, there have been so many mixed messages uh, going to both the provincial government and the federal government. Um, you know, we have uh, MPPs from this area who continue to say that the LRT is dead. Uh, we have MPs in this area and the federal government that, that are opposed to it as well. And, and, you know, this sends mixed messages to the government when the vast majority of Hamiltonians voted in a very clear plebiscite at the last election that they wanted an LRT, Um, I have to tell you how disappointed I am and and our members of the legislature in this area, in both federal and provincial, that haven't uh, adopted the wishes and aspirations of Hamiltonians. The LRT is far from being dead. Uh, In in our opinion, I think that um, there's a renewed interest from the uh, provincial government, uh, Premier Ford um, has shown interest in kickstarting the process again. Um, the federal government, uh, Minister McKenna, um, who is the infrastructure minister and from Hamilton mm-hmm. originally, um, is also expressed interest that she wants to get this project done. And so if we have both levels of government showing interest, uh, I can't for the life of me see why we can't get this done. The the only component, of course, that is missing is is you keep on hearing that, you know, the the municipality um, should participate in some way. Well, we all know that at this point uh, during this pandemic, uh, the municipality is in no shape, financial shape to participate. And so why not go to the private sector and uh, do a, a P3 on this project where, the two levels of government and the private sector can invest in this project and and get it done once and for all. And Leuna's pension plan um, has been prepared right from the very beginning um, to participate and and get this project off the ground because it is a wonderful economic development project that will boost the economy uh, of the greater Hamilton
0: area. But Joe, your point uh, I think is very uh, cogent to this discussion here. Uh, for the city, and you've worked with levels of government for years and years, of course, with Luna, not just here in Hamilton, but right across North America. Uh, the city, in this particular case, who's going to be the recipient of this project, pretty much has to speak with one voice. Now, I understand there's never going to be unanimity on a project this large. There wasn't on the Red Hill. There wasn't on a lot of other major projects, and there certainly won't be on this. But when right. you get the mayor saying, yes, we need to do this, and a, a, a number of other counselors who are about this, and then you look at the paper today, and there's an op-ed piece from another city councilor saying, we don't want LRT, we don't need LRT, we can't afford LRT. Uh, you and I know, and I'll just remind our listeners, that uh, if the federal and provincial governments, uh, they have what they call a clipping service. In other words, the staff of, of the MPs and the cabinet ministers go through the local papers every day about what they consider to be important articles. Uh, that one's going to go on somebody's desk today, and and the minister's going to say, are these guys for it or against it? I don't know.
1: Well, that's a really good point, and if everybody was united... Uh, on the LRT issue, I'm sure that, you know, it would have been fast-tracked by now. And I think it is those mixed messages that, quite frankly, have stalled the process. And there is no consensus uh, on, uh, uh, unanimous consensus on on City Council, which is really unfortunate. And I think some of those councillors who are, are still anti-LRT really have to come into this next century. You know, they're still talking about, you know, buses, they're still talking about archaic methods, uh, of transportation, look at this is an old city. Our buses don 't have will not have the turning radius um, to uh, uh, sufficiently move around the city and the LRT is the best way from McMaster all the way down the Centennial Parkway. But what a lot of folks aren 't getting and, and especially those anti LRT people at city council, this has very little to do with setting down a, a piece of rail between McMaster and Centennial Parkway, this is a gigantic economic development play. The amount of economic development that will will be developed along the route, the number of construction, um, buildings, uh, residential housing, rental housing, condominiums, uh, uh, um, offices that will be built along the route, is incredible, and those are all private individuals that have purchased land that are ready to go, and some of them already started, like us, on King Street, where we mm-hmm. have two towers going up, uh, Darko, who is uh, building as well, and others who have purchased land and, and are going to build. The, the, we're talking billions of dollars of economic stimulus for the city, and then on top of that stimulus, the $3.6 billion of construction, Uh, cost just to build the actual LRT. This is a huge economic development play for the city. And that means more money in the pockets of the corner store to to the the grocery store to the the guy who sells appliances and whatever. This is a big, big, big economic play. And I don't understand for the life of me, Bill, why some of these people don't get it.
0: Well, uh, the word vision comes to mind. There's some others that think they're being frugal about these sorts of things. And, and I, One of the things that I guess really kind of messed this, this whole conversation up, Joe, was in December when, when Minister Mulroney made the announcement that they were withdrawing funding. Uh, they quoted uh, a, an astronomical number of, of the cost and, and the the maintenance, of course. Uh, 30-year maintenance, I guess, cost over the, something like that, which really a lot of people thought was an inflated number. Now, you've done some research on this. I know that at the time you said there's no way the number is that high. Uh, one of your your partners fengate have done some number crunching what did you find yes
1: you know fengate is our infrastructure arm for our pension plan and we have a nine billion dollar pension plan soon to be 10 and, and and they've been doing a number of infrastructure projects for us we did eight hospitals in this province uh, uh, under uh, a p3 program which we will fund and keep for the next 20 years or 25 years, depending on the term. And and we've done exceptionally well on getting this stuff done. And so they have crunched numbers for such a long time that I trust um, their ability to be conservative in in, in their uh, 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 study. And they came up with with a number of 3.4 billion, which is very close to the 3.6 billion that that, uh, the previous government um, ha- had estimated that it would cost to do the LRT, and uh, Fengate did a very in-depth, in-depth analysis uh, for, for us, and I have sent that to the task force when the task force was uh, 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 looking at the LRT, and then, of course, to Minister McKenna as well, federally, and to the provincial government as well. I think that whoever... Did their uh, analysis originally at the province, uh, had included a whole bunch of stuff that, quite frankly, has nothing to do with the cost of constructing the LRD. And it was inflated. Um, I'm not sure if it was inflated for political purposes or not. I won't comment on that. Um, but, however, it was inaccurate. And uh, look at, I represent 130,000 construction workers. And I deal with thousands of construction companies on a daily basis. And I can tell you that all of those construction companies were all scratching their heads at the numbers that they saw coming out of the province at that time. So who better uh, to assess the costs associated with constructing an LRT but the construction companies that actually build the LRTs across the country? And I can assure you that that FENGATE, um, did the uh, analysis and work on the Edmonton LRT and a whole bunch of other uh, projects, in, even here in Ontario. I trust they're not.
0: How do you get the ball moving?
1: 3.6, we can do it. If we can get the province of Ontario to put in $1.2 billion, the feds to put in $1.2 billion, and then go to the private sector for the balance of the funding, um, this project can get done.
0: But in, in, in you just talked about some of the other projects that you and FenGate have been involved in, and, and there's a long record of, of success here. But for that to happen, for, for to, to break this inertia that seems to be going on, uh, somebody's got to make the first move, whether it's going to be the province, because they're all speaking, you know, the province is saying, well, you know, where's the federal government? The federal government, Ms. McKenna, she says we're interested, but there's no commitment yet. I mean, somebody's got to be you know aggressive here and say let's get this thing done can we get everybody down at the table together and i don't think that's happened yet
1: well we're pretty aggressive um as you know and yeah. we've been pushing the envelope um almost daily uh, on on the lrt i had a call um with uh, our new finance minister christia freeland uh two days ago and i i brought up the lrt as well uh, even though that was not what we were supposed to be talking about. But I took the the opportunity again um, to bring it up with any minister that I talk to, whether it's provincial or federal, because this is an important project, not only for Hamiltonians, but even for them. The amount of revenue that the province and the feds will get uh, on a big economic development project like this is enormous. So they stand to gain from the economic benefits of an LRT being built as well. And so we've been pushing hard. Um, Unfortunately, as you know, Bill, we're not part of the government. I mean, we're just on the outside lobbying and pushing. Um, And so we we rely, we're going to have to rely, whether we like it or not, uh, on the ability of the provincial and federal government to step up here and and get this done. My understanding is that there's a will uh, on both sides to, to, to get things moving. And I hope within the next uh a week or two or three that we'll start to hear some good news coming out of both levels of government
0: well, the provinces said that, and they've got this report, as we mentioned, the independent report that was chaired by our Tony Valeri, uh, and I had Tony on the program just after that, and we talked about the, the nuts and bolts of that report. That's sitting on somebody's desk at Queen's Park right now, and they said, well, we're going to verify these numbers and, and probably get back to you. Well, you know, it's the end of August now, and they haven't gotten back to us right now. Uh, and, and as we saw with the expressway and other projects, Joe, the longer this thing gets kicked down the road, the more it's going to cost.
1: There's no question about it. I think, you know, when it comes to infrastructure, especially transportation infrastructure, um, those are the line items in budgets that for decades have been canceled uh, because it's so easy to save by canceling infrastructure. So we're way behind, Bill. We're like 30 years behind. We should have had an LRT in Hamilton a decade or two ago. Uh, we should have had uh, transit improvements Uh, right across Canada, quite frankly, 30 years ago. And so we've got a huge infrastructure deficit in this country, and every time they postpone, it just costs more and more, and the ability to get it done becomes harder and harder because it becomes more expensive um, every year that goes by. And so we really need to expedite the process here. Uh, I'm urging both the federal and provincial governments to, to come together, let's get this done, this is a great project, not only for this community, but the extended communities even around us benefit from it. I mean, you know, people who are going to be working and making money on doing and, and participating in any way on this kind of a project, whether it, be, whether it be some of the buildings that are going to be built along the route or the LRT itself, those folks are going to be spending money in Hamilton, in Flamborough, and Ancaster, Stony Creek, Grimsby, uh, Burlington, and even extended beyond... Uh, the Hamilton area. So this is a big, big economic boom for this area and beyond.
0: The the criticism that I'm sure you've heard is this is just the wrong time. And you mentioned COVID already, and the and the recession uh, that COVID has caused. And uh, you talked about the the financial straits that Hamilton's in right now. Well, the federal and provincial governments have uh, ballooning deficits as well. Uh, I, I want to get your comment about that, about this is the right time or the wrong time to do this. And I'm doing this in the context of a historical context. When they were coming out of the Depression in the 1930s, it was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, that started a number of different mega-projects to basically get people back to work. And, yes, it cost money initially, but it went a long way towards getting them back toward the road to recoveries. Is, is that the, the mindset here?
1: It, there's no question that uh, this is the, exactly the right time. Um, to, to be doing projects like the, the Hamilton R T, but numerous other infrastructure projects right across Canada. In fact, I sit on the construction roundtable federally. Um, you know, where the the Canadian Construction Association, the Society of Engineers and Architects, and um, and, and some of the trades, myself and and uh, um, uh, Lionel Railton from the Operating Engineers sit on that committee as well. And and clearly. Uh, initiating a number of infrastructure projects will kickstart the economy and get the economy back in shape. The, there's no question that when FDR did it back um, uh, decades ago, it worked then and it will work now. Uh, we really need to stimulate the economy. And the best way to do it is to, to get these infrastructure projects built. Look, at they should have been built 20 years ago. Uh, we're, we're that far behind. So what better time in a time where the economy is bad? And, yes, you know, you hear the, the criticism from folks saying, yeah, well, the government's already have big deficits. Well, you know, join the club. The entire world is in the same boat. So it's not like Canada uh, is the only one who has these deficits. In fact, if we start to compare uh, Canada to the rest of the world, we're in better shape than most countries anyways and so let's get the infrastructure in this country built once and for all. Look, at everybody that, that is listening today has driven on our roads. You can't disagree with me that our roads need work. And, and our, we have sewers and water mains in our cities that are still wooden water mains that date back 120, 150 years. Come on. Is, is this a modern country where, where we have infrastructure that dates back a century ago it's time to get that done and and during the pandemic when when there's a lot of people unemployed this is the best time to stimulate the
0: joe mancinelli uh, international vice president of course regional manor central and eastern canada as always joe thanks so much for the time uh, we'll see what happens over the next couple of weeks take care
1: thank you bill take care <laughs>
0: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was the early morning hours of Monday that uh, Aaron O'Toole was uh, proclaimed to be the winner and uh, the new leader of the Federal Conservative Party. Uh, In his acceptance speech, he uh, first of all wanted to uh, say hello and uh, thank the millions of people that were watching. I'm not so sure it was millions at one o'clock in the morning in the Eastern Time Zones. But he did have an opportunity yesterday for his first official press conference as as opposition leader and leader of the Conservative Party. And uh, to his credit, he uh, he tackled uh, some of the more controversial questions like this one.
2: I am an MP with a clear track record on standing up for human rights, whether it's women, whether it's the LGBT community. I won the leadership of the Conservative Party as a pro-choice Conservative MP.
0: Uh, those sorts of commitments, though, things that, well, his predecessor, Andrew Scheer, probably, well, they could not or would not make those sorts of commitments. And that, as we know, cost them dearly in the last federal election. So it seems to be a different attitude. Uh, the concern here, I guess, is uh, how do you define yourself and how do you introduce yourself to the Canadian public? let's bring henry jasek into the conversation professor of political science at mcmaster university henry good morning how are you today just great bill good F- job one i think for any leader unless you well i guess everybody's gonna have some profile at all i mean aaron tools is not new to politics he was in the harper government uh, but at the same time, uh, let's face it, a lot of Canadians aren't paying attention right now to anything to do with politics. It's summertime. They're worried about COVID, back to school, uh, maybe wrapping up holidays. How does, how does a guy like Aaron O'Toole introduce himself to the Canadian public?
3: Well, I think he has to get ready for when, the, uh, you know, when he's going to be back in the House of Commons. I think the best thing for him is to uh, really uh, get his staff in, or, uh, all lined up and make sure he's got the people who can really help him and you know who are strong staffers and I think that's uh that's that's really critical at this point he probably has a <clears throat> excuse me a pretty good idea of what you know what positions he's going to take and what he's going uh, other things he's going to say uh, and we've heard you know after after he was selected I think he he had strong clear messages which were were really a welcome change from the previous leader so i th- think he's on that step is right and he's starting to try to fill in people i don't know uh, any of the people that he's appointed so far or wants to appoint but uh, that's it's really critical that he basically gets the uh, you know uh, the staff support he he really should have
0: so September 21st after the throne speech, uh, that's right. obviously when they go back in, there's going to be an unconfidence vote, and right. uh, that's that's when you roll up your sleeves and get right into the, uh, the bullpen there, I guess, with everybody else. Exactly. The other element to this, though, is, is – and, and I think he actually made a good first step here – is you need to define yourself, because mm-hmm. if you don't do that quickly – uh, then the opposition are going to do it for you. And we saw, the, well, the conservatives do that, to Stefan Dion and certainly to Michael Ignatieff too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this guy's going to do this, this guy's going to do this. Uh, and you know what was going to happen with with O'Toole as a conservative leader, that with the, some of these key issues, these uh, social con issues that they're concerned about. And he, uh, to his credit, addressed them right up front.
3: Oh, yeah, he he didn't dodge them, and I think that was the important thing. I think Sheer hurt, hurt himself by looking and that he was trying to you know, straddle two horses, you know, uh, <laughs> both sides of the question on a lot of these controversial uh, social conservative issues. Yeah, yeah. O'Toole is completely different. And he also, I think also a very important point, point that I think he made that I think people will absorb is he's made the case. Listen, I'm not a, people don't know me, I'm not, but I'm not a showman. I'm not worried about selling my brand all the time. I look at problems and I solve them. I get things done. <laughs> I think that was a very nice message to have because I think this is what you know. I do. I do, do think there's a certain amount of cynicism gets bred into people because they're looking at people and saying, "Oh, this person's just working on his brand. He just wants people to think that he's uh, you know nice to the, this group and you know and uh, whatever 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 the brand uh, you know elements of the brand are." And instead, you know, I think what people want is people who are going to work hard and get things done, and that's exactly the image that he's, you know, the argument he's making is that, you know, I don't work on my brand. I work on solutions to
0: problems. How much pull is, is a leader, whether it's going to be, well, in this case, Aaron O'Toole, Andrew Shear before him, uh, in, in developing party policy and, and, and party stands on this? Uh, I mean, Stephen Harper obviously had a, a immense amount of uh, influence in, in how things were developed. It essentially became Stephen Harper's party mm-hmm. uh, and reflected very much his political bent. Uh, does O'Toole have the, the muscle to be able to do that right now? Because if, what he said yesterday uh, was not essentially what the, what was part of the conservative platform before. He's he's taking a bold step here right now. But how do you get the rest of the people behind him to buy into it?
3: Well, I I think by being strong and decisive, and uh, no in and taking clear positions and saying, this is this is where we're going. You know, this is and he's out in, and he's out in front. He's you know he's reducing ambiguity and saying this is where we're going. I'm going to listen to people. You can talk to me. I um, want to hear your, uh, you know, I'll take your views seriously, but, but, you know, when we have to make a decision, the decision's going to be made uh, on me reflecting on that and then deciding, boom, we got to go. We can't dilly-dally around on, on things and can't try to make every everybody happy, you know, you can listen to everybody, you try to take into account but basically, you've got to go ahead. Now, let me th- say some things. because I have I sort of an odd slant, not an odd slant, but maybe an unusual slant on him. I'm going to have to tell you my background. Yeah. One reason why I'm very, I'm very impressed with him, he was the person who I thought they should pick, and I thought he was really always underrated.
0: You, you told was, me that months ago, yeah.
3: Yeah, and, I te- and the reason is, is and I don't know if I told you at this point, I, I worked with his father, John O'Toole, at Queens Park. His father was a longtime PC uh, backbencher. And he was, uh, I, I had the job, I was running the internship program there. Uh, and uh, John, John O'Toole was just, I, I just loved being around him and talking about him. He was a guy that would, uh, get. he would look for problems to solve and, and, and then try to solve them. And he did this with private members' bills. And on occasion, governments would essentially adopt his private members' bill as government policy. I mean it's a thankless job because you don't get the credit for it. The government if you have a great idea and you convince the, you know, the government they ought to go in that direction, they take it all over, introduce it as their own and they take the credit. Yep. So John didn't John never made it into the Father John never made it into the cabinet, but he was a solid um uh, uh, policy uh solver MP, uh, MPP he was a great mentor to uh, my uh, my students uh, my uh, interns when they did work with him uh, and I enjoyed talking to him and you know and I think and I think essentially his son is picked up from that I think his son you know saw the, how, how his father operated and I think his father has probably had a very big influence on him uh, which I don't think people would, you know, have paid attention to, and and then I think if you want to know how he's going to behave, well, the first place I'd say is you look at the record of his father as as a, as an MPP at Queens Park. The other thing I will say, I, I also have another well, a small connection with him. One day, uh, uh, his father did come to me and ask for a favor, and the favor was this: is that his son, then a backbencher, Aaron, then a backbencher uh wanted to get an intern up in up in Ottawa uh for the year now the problem in the in the house of commons and, and to a lesser extent but also true in the uh, at queen's park the the members want uh are more likely to want these interns to work for them but there's only a limited number of interns so there's a lot of unhappy oftentimes <laughs> uh public you know uh, legislators who don't get uh, you know an intern when they want one so I, so his father said, "Can you do me a favor? What kind of pool do you have over there?" So I didn't, I didn't know the the person running the program very well up in Ottawa, but I wrote a long letter saying, "Listen, I think you ought to put it, give Aaron an intern. I mean, he's 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 learned a lot from his father. His father was a very a great mentor to uh, interns down here at Queen's Park. I'm sure that has rubbed off onto him." And he did get it, and I wrote a long letter. And he did get an intern. So I, so that that's sort of my background within with with him and with his father. And I I just formed you know looking looking at you know knowing the father, looking at the son, I formed a very positive view. And I think you know they 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 are they you know he comes from a solid pol, you know public service political public service uh, family. And I think uh, I think he's going to surprise people, uh... but based on my experience. Uh, that i've just mentioned i just think he's going to turn out better than people think and and even and beyond that remember he's from ontario i think he what he is going to be able to do is really connect with the people of ontario and there, and, and his, so he's going to be a real threat to the liberals in Ontario because he's really going to connect. I think he has a good sense of what the what the people of Ontario are like, what they want in a political leader, and he's going to be able to communicate to them. And I think, and remember, we're of course we all know we're the biggest province, and if you do well in Ontario, you're well on your way to uh, success in Canada.
0: Uh, Durham is his writing. Actually, it was his father's writing in the provincial government. That's too. right. That's right. Uh, not a teeming metropolis necessarily. Uh, and one of the concerns that uh, the Conservatives had over the last couple of elections, really, though, Henry, yeah. is uh, they can't attract much attention in the major cities. Uh, right. You know, Montreal, Toronto, uh, Hamilton, uh, Ottawa, places like that. They're they're red for the most part or orange. Uh, is is he the guy that can turn that around? Is he the guy that can actually people say, hey, maybe this guy's worth a look? Because Andrew shear just couldn't get that done, and, and no, no. a lot of people think it was because he also had a, a great deal of support from the social conservative element of the party when he won the leadership, and and a lot of people thought he felt that he was beholden to them as a result, so he was hesitant, as you mentioned, to take a stand on a lot of these controversial issues.
3: Yeah, and I don't think he 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 really um you know was able to bond with the ontario electorate i uh, i don't think he mean he acted in such a way that you know he just he just didn't develop it he had he had a demeanor and, a, and an understanding of things which was you know didn't quite fit ontario now in terms of you know the cities of course are very important but you, but it's really also very important is that the suburban Ring uh you know away uh, around uh, uh Toronto for example and and all through southern ontario, so there 's a a lot of seats where people he 's going to be a, an attractive alternative to the conservatives uh, sorry to the liberals and i, I you know it 's not only you know and, and I think quite frankly he probably will surprise us maybe in terms of how he, you know, uh, bonds with the people who live in downtown Toronto. But I think he, you know, there's a lot of places in Toronto where in fact, you know, he, I'm sure he's going to bond with, you know, certainly with the, you know, the, uh, suburban areas or even, even the, you know, the middle, strong middle-class areas in the city of Toronto. So there's, there's a writings he has, he has a, you know, I think he has a very good shot at. And, uh, I, not to mention, of course, the rural ridings and uh, you know the places like uh, you know the you know the 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 um, London area and uh, you know the Tri City area of Kitchener Waterloo Guelph in there and those uh, seats as well. So wherever wherever you've seen the the Ford uh, PCs do well in the last election, those are going to be ridings where I think uh, Aaron O'Toole is going to work on and and has a shot. I'm. I'm convinced that he's going to do well in Ontario. How well, I don't know. Will he ever be prime minister? I don't know. But certainly, I think he's he's going to he's going to have his day uh, on, on elections when he on election days when he's going to look pretty good.
0: Interesting, though, that uh, Premier Ford said he's not going to be campaigning uh, for uh, Aaron O'Toole or anybody else. I mean, it's not, I don't think it was personally against O'Toole. No. But the other element to this, too, uh, the Main Street poll that came out, the polling, the national polling that came out uh, the day after O'Toole was actually selected as leader, uh, the Trudeau government still had a significant lead, Mm -hmm. uh, almost double digit lead over the conservatives. and, And they did ask that question, well, what if Aaron O'Toole was the leader? And it was actually more of a lead. Uh, which I don't think is a reflection on Aaron O'Toole's ability. I think what it means is that Canadians just don't know the guy. yet.
3: No, no, no. They don't know him. I mean, Aaron O'Toole said, people don't know me. Uh, So that's why seeing him in the house, uh, you know, getting out there to events and interacting with people, I think he's the type of person, he's going to be very active in, in, uh, you know, making connections with people, I'm sure he knows. I mean, he's—he's. He's, I'm sure his his father has taught him this, and he's going to help him with this. He's gonna—he's gonna figure out who are the important people, groups of people that I've got to communicate with now, and those are going to be and i'm sure he are going to be actually the, the municipal people the people who run our municipalities he's going he's going it's the mayors and the councillors that he's going to have to go around and convince listen uh, ottawa's going to be your friend when i'm when i'm here i'm going to be i'm going to be here for you and, and get to know them and get and and work on them those are the people more than the general public right now that I think uh, he should worry about like I I don't there's no reason to work on the general public a great deal right now because we're not going to have an election this year I'm convinced I I tend to think it's going to be a, in the fall of next year but so but I think he's got to get those leaders off on on his side those municipal leaders and so he and then we're I think we're going to see him making that connection and uh, next year is the year when he when the general public is really going to you know see see a lot of them but of course they will see him in the house of commons when it does does come back but uh, i wouldn't worry about that a lot of people don't know him and uh, at this point but the, it's the the leaders right now he has to work uh, you know municipal leaders and the other kind of leaders in the province he has to work on and of course he's done i think a good job of convincing the people out west you know i'm from ontario but i but i'm gonna i'm gonna fight hard for things that are important out west and we've seen uh, that he has a very good connection with the Premier of Alberta who himself you know was very good at he was good at connecting with people in Ontario particularly the uh, ethnic groups
0: to that point, there, I've got about a minute or so left here. It would be in his best interest then uh, to not pull the plug or try to pull the plug on the government and just uh, get some time in, in the House, question period, et cetera, uh, yeah. to try to, I guess, increase that. And, uh, and the other element of to this, too, and I think you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, inasmuch as uh, there are some people in the Conservative Party that would love to bring down the government and, and send a, a, us back to an election, uh, they really don't have that ability right now. It's the NDP that really holds the balance right now. They can pull the plug, and I don't get the sense that they're ready to do that now anyway.
3: I, I think you're absolutely correct, it, and I think all the parties have uh, a, a, an interest in going into next year. I think none of the parties, except maybe the Bloc, possibly. I think the Bloc could be the pot, runs the difficulty of you know maybe may uh, you know the, a, a real threat to them will be the Liberals next year, uh, and uh, but so. But I think other than the Bloc, I think all the other parties probably feel that uh, they'll be better off next year. And so that's why I don't think there's going to be an election.
0: Henry, always a pleasure. Great to get your insight into this. Thanks so much for this today.
3: Okay. Love talking to you, Bill.
0: Bye-bye. Take care. Henry Jasik, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A new Stats Can survey says that the safety of any potential COVID-19 vaccine concerns a great deal of Canadians. One in ten would actually refuse the vaccine which is a rather surprising number. Joining us to talk about this is Brian Dixon. Uh, Brian is the uh, professor at University of Waterloo and teaches at the Department of Biology, uh, currently researching COVID antibody testing methods. Uh, professor, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us in this very important issue.
4: Oh, I'm happy to be here, Bill.
0: 10% of the people said they wouldn't take vaccines. There are people who won't take vaccines for anything. So I guess that number doesn't really surprise you, does it?
4: No, actually, it's, it's actually a smaller number than I thought it would be. <laughs> but um, vaccine hesitancy is... is- legitimate and I understand that people have concerns.
0: Such as, I mean, there are anti vaxxers who just think, you know, it's going to cause something else. And I, I you know that debate's going to happen again as soon as the vaccine is announced. Uh, there are going to be, you know, you're going to hear all sorts of conspiracy theories, etc., cetera, et cetera, i I'll tell you right up front, and I'd love to get your comment on this. The concern I've got right now is that it looks as if there's being an awful lot of political pressure being exerted on the medical profession and on researchers to move this thing along instead of following the process that everyone is supposed to follow the stage one, stage two, stage three. And that sort of testing, you know, we saw that, an example of that in the States just the other day.
4: Exactly. There is a lot of political pressure, but I think the scientists uh, themselves would be well advised just to stick to the protocol. I understand there's a need for a rush, but we have to make sure that the vaccine is effective and safe, and it just takes time to do. It, it normally takes about 10 years, but a lot of that probably is regulatory, <laughs> like just, <laughs> just reviewing it and getting the licensing and everything in there. And they can cut back on that kind of thing but they still need to do all of the safety testing.
0: Well, they have cut back on a lot of the red tape, have they not? I've, I've talked to you know, some of your co-workers at other universities that are working on this as well, and, and I asked them, quite frankly, because of the time frame we were told back in March of how long this might take, and we seem to have made huge strides, and they said, well, because government understands they got to get this thing done. Uh, and so they've cut a lot of the red tape. But t- to that point, though, uh, as you've just mentioned, that doesn't mean you can start skipping moves here, can you?
4: No, you can't. You absolutely can't. You have to go through all of the the safety testing, and you have to make sure it's effective. And it's very hard to make sure it's effective without, in fact, using it in a scenario where people have the potential to contract the disease and see if it protects them, which is why I think AstraZeneca was going to deploy 10,000 doses in Florida and 10,000 doses in South Africa. That's a very important step. There's no point giving it to people unless you know it's effective.
0: And, and we don't know that for some time, obviously. I mean, you can't just inject them and say, okay, you didn't get sick. It's been a week now. I guess that this, this is fine. The, yeah, exactly. How long a period, when you're doing that, that blind test, how long do you have to wait until you can actually say, okay, I think we can start to gather some data now?
4: Well, I think you have to wait until other people in the population who are not vaccinated start contracting a significant a significant number of people contract the disease and then see what happens in your test group. So it will take several months, and there's just no way around that.
0: Uh, And we saw, again, again, with the plasma situation with the the FDA down in the States, uh, and the concern there was that uh, with no blind testing, we don't know if if what they're being injected is actually helping or they just got better on their own.
4: Exactly. And that's part of the problem is that um, you really need well-controlled blinded Uh, test to to make sure that science is working. A lot of the stuff that gets out in the press these days isn't peer-reviewed, and you've got to watch to make sure that happens, and you've got to make sure it's the kind of test that's blinded and, and controlled. If it's just an observational study where we gave this to several people and we saw improvement, it really doesn't tell you scientifically that it's working.
0: Like hydroxychloroquine, I mean, and, and, exactly which yeah. is paquinal, by the way. I mean, people don't, don't understand. I mean, that's been around for a long, long time, being treated for a number of different conditions right now, but the evidence seems to be, I guess, uh, Brian, the more you've, you exposed, that it just doesn't work on COVID nineteen.
4: Exactly, it it has no very very little or no effect on on the progression of the disease
0: but it has it with others. And, and again, I guess that's the, the mistake non-medical people and non-researchers are going to find is, well, it worked for this, so why can't it do this? Uh, exactly. this, is a, this is a very different uh, virus, isn't it?
4: It is a very different virus. It's, it's, it's much more widespread in the body than we usually see with, with uh, diseases, like it has effects everywhere. And it's one that, that the real killer is that it, it spreads when it's asymptomatic, and that is a real problem.
0: How are you doing in the research right now? Are you optimistic? Are you, are you making strides? Well, I'm making
4: strides. I'm I've uh, doing some sampling of of people and and seeing who has antibodies and who hasn't. We've actually got a study to see how long the antibody titer lasts. How, how what duration people keep the antibodies for? But again, that takes months to understand because it takes months to fade away. <laughs>
0: Well, and there was an example of that earlier this week, of course, the the case in Hong Kong uh, that was uncovered. This is uh, by, I guess, their record. Anyway, the first person that's actually contracted the disease twice. Uh, I think the first time was in Europe. The second time was it was in Asia. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I guess the question now is, okay, how serious is it? How did it happen? And does that mean the antibodies are, are ineffective after a period of time?
4: Exactly, and as you say, it's not really a well controlled controlled study. Um, Three or four individuals in, uh, you know, millions of people who've contracted the disease is not really a statistical number. So we really don't know how frequent this is going to be in the long term. And from what I can see, the couple of cases where it has happened, the second disease was mild, even though it was a different strain of the virus. So it seems like the antibodies are doing their job. They're not they're not allowing the virus to take over and cause a severe disease. So I think, though, it's just going to have to take time till we, we actually see the frequency and we see the long-term effects.
0: Well, and, and to that point, and, and again, I don't want to get, get you into the weeds of the politics of this, uh, it may not be ready by a certain election or by a certain date. It'll be ready when it's ready. I guess that's It'll really the an- the short answer. Ready.
4: Exactly. And, and And again, it has to be safe, right? You have to make sure that it's safe for people to take. You've got to make sure it's effective. And that just takes time. And I think everyone who said the estimates that it will be next spring is probably much closer to reality than anything else.
0: There are two different sets of standards, though, are there, Brian? I mean, you know, when it comes to approval, final approval, the Federal Drug Administration, of course, in the States, Health Canada, uh, we are told, anecdotally, we figure anyway, has much stronger and more stringent standards like that. Is there much of a difference, really?
4: Uh, there is a little bit, little bit of a difference, um, and I think that that ours are more stringent. But I th- it doesn't mean that the process takes any longer. I think they're just more careful about what the side effects are.
0: are There's so many people around the world working on this and doing the sort of things that you're doing and so many other things. And of course, the parallel path is trying to find some sort of way to treat the people that have already had uh, COVID-19. And I know they're making some great strides in that. We we're a lot smarter than we were six months ago about this. Uh, but are we working collaboratively here? Are we, are, is there a sharing of information with all the people that are, are doing this? Um, there
4: is as much as scientists can, and again, <laughs> um, they, 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 we try very hard. I mean, in the world, I collaborate with people all around the planet. But but again, when when the politics get in the way, like we just saw, the the Can-Sino agreement fell apart, right? So the the Chinese yeah. are not going to share their their vaccine materials with Canada. So. Uh, Scientists, I think, would share. Naturally, it's just the way we work, but I think occasionally the politics gets in the way.
0: Uh, not for the first time either in situations <laughs> like that. It's got to be very frustrating for, for people like you.
4: Well, we, we do our best, and we work within with, within the limits that we're given. So. Uh,
0: Brian, I'm, I'm so glad you had some time to talk to us about this today. Like I say, there's a lot of questions being raised right now, and, and I think the concerns that a lot of folks are, are raising right now is simply because they just don't know and uh, the, the more conversations we can have with people like you that are right there on the front lines i think i think the, the you know the better we're going to be it'll assuage a lot of those concerns thanks so much for this today
4: oh you're welcome take care
0: and good luck uh, continue good luck with the great work that you're doing brian Thank professor you. brian dixon at the university of waterloo who's working on uh, researching uh, covid antibody testing methods a very important part of the process is that we move towards a vaccine uh, and again i'll underscore what uh, what professor dixon just said uh, not as much as you know some of the politicians down south including Trump think that you know this is going to be done by election day uh, probably springtime and that's and and they're not dragging their heels for political purposes I mean what a ridiculous thing to say they're making sure that it's right uh, because if you don't do all those steps and you don't know what how efficient it is or what the side effects might be, you're putting people's lives at risk, and that's that's silly, ridiculous, which I guess is typical of some of the stuff we've heard out of the White House. Uh, let's talk about something that I know a lot of people listening to the program in Hamilton, London, right across Ontario, right across Canada are concerned about, and that's back to school. Uh, the provincial government here in Ontario, of course, has come out with what they call recommendations and, and a set of standards, such as they are, uh, about returning to school. There's been a great deal of concern raised about those, uh, boards of education and teachers and parents groups have all complained about this the uh, government's response seemed to be uh... wash their hands of it and simply said well if you want to do something better you get the money from your own boards and go ahead and do this but what about the health and safety standards in the schools themselves well four teachers unions are wanting the ontario government to issue workplace safety orders for the new school year i want to bring harvey bischoff president of the ontario secondary school teachers federation into the conversation harvey good morning how are you doing today
2: you're pretty good, Bill. Thanks. How are you?
0: Good. and not surprised to hear this. I think you raised this issue with a few weeks ago uh, about working conditions, uh, not just for the, 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 the kids, obviously, but for the teachers themselves who are going to be in those buildings all day long.
2: A- absolutely. Um, and, you know, I mean, uh, workers in Ontario, regardless of where they work, have a right to a safe and healthy workplace. And uh, at the moment, we don't see that the government's gone uh, anywhere near far enough in terms of uh, guaranteeing that
0: concern that i've got and i'm just a lay person i'm watching this whole thing unfold harvey you know but i have talked to you and, and other folks uh, that are working in the classroom on a, on a daily basis uh they're frustrated because the message that they seem to be getting from queen's park is well, the, that we're not going to do anymore sorry guys that's all there is to it if it's not good enough go to your board of education in other words uh, you know we're not spending any more money not another nickel which seemed to be their mantra right from day one
2: yeah it, it really is a shocking abdication of responsibility um, the you know the the ministry the government have a, have a duty to provide leadership at this time and instead they've abdicated that to uh, to school boards um, you know all the while claiming that they you know they wouldn't spare uh, a penny in terms of uh, making sure that the return to face-to-face learning is safe and yet clearly um, they've put tight fiscal parameters around their plan and that's what's driving the plan it's not Health and safety. Um, it is it is their their con, you know uh, these, these fiscal parameters, which in the long run I think may end up costing them a lot more. If we end up with school based outbreaks that you know I mean the cost to to um, to health, the costs uh, if that requires uh, community shutdowns again, if businesses have to close because of because of outbreaks that originate in schools, um, it will be uh, you know demonstrated to be penny wise pound foolish approach.
0: And you're not speaking in the hypothetical here, just about every jurisdiction that's gone through this previously, in the States, in Europe, uh, in, in Israel, have seen those spikes. And and the concern here now is, sometimes from what I'm hearing anyway and what I'm reading, it's not that it's going to happen, it's how severe is it going to be.
2: Yeah, and, and I mean, we've seen, so we've seen the, the you know, projected, the projections, the modeling um, that cause us grave concern. We've seen, As you mentioned, Israel, most recently uh, uh, Berlin uh, had a significant outbreak. And there are ways to uh, seriously mitigate those risks that this government simply isn't undertaking. I mean, when, when there isn't another public space in the province where you would be allowed to put uh, 35 people who can't socially distance uh, for some reason they seem to think that that's uh, okay in a classroom and and that you know I, I just don't understand the thinking behind that
0: well and you just explained about certain scenarios here and it was what if this what if this what if this the reason we're speaking there in the hypothetical is because here we are about a week or so away from the opening of schools a little more than a week away we still don't know the province's contingency plan
2: we we don't we don't know we don't know what their metrics are for uh you know when when a contingency plan would have to be brought in, into place what what kind of an outbreak would result in closure what kind of community prevalence would result in taking different measures all of those things are opaque and it's that uncertainty you know in part that drives the anxiety that we're seeing not just amongst my members uh but absolutely amongst parents and you know and no doubt no doubt students um so it's it's that it's that lack of clarity um, that that's driving a lot. In the meantime, you know, you have school boards scrambling, uh, and I, I sympathize with them. They're scrambling to come up with plans uh, within the parameters the government set. They come up with those plans. And the government turns around and rejects them, and tells them tells them they have tells them they have to change them within you know a couple of weeks out before uh, most students are returning to class.
0: Well, and and which, again, and I'm sure you're aware of the Hamilton circumstance here. The Hamilton Board of Education has just extended the deadline for registration by a couple of days uh, because a lot of folks haven't done it, and some of it had to do with the website. I get that. But others, uh, they're just concerned because they don't know what the plan is right now, and they don't know if their kids are going to be put in a precarious situation. And teachers have got to be feeling the same way. I I guess they have an option to opt out, but I I haven't talked to one teacher yet that wants to, uh, but they're concerned about their health too.
2: Yeah, teachers and education workers both. I mean, I represent a lot of education workers, and, you know, in some cases those are, you know, for example, early childhood educators. They'll be working in JKSK classes with, with uh, 30 students. Um, they are, you know, I represent uh, education assistants who work up close with uh, high needs kids frequently where, you know, distancing just isn't, isn't uh, a very realistic possibility. Um, and they are all the uncertainty, how, what the return is going to look like, the, the last-minute changes in plans. It, it really has created chaos, um, and it's, it's driving a sense of, you know, it, um, it, it's swinging from anxiety to downright fear in some cases.
0: I think I already know the answer, but I'm going to ask this anyway. Have you had any dialogue at all with the ministry about these concerns?
2: There's been no dialogue. Absolutely no dialogue, I tell you, we did meet with the Minister of Labor and you know his uh, officials on on Monday, and what we discovered in that meeting that was uh, equally concerning was they you know they're sending they're, they're, they're touting the fact that they're sending inspectors out into schools. but when we asked what standards are those inspectors measuring the risk uh, against what we found out is there are no standards there are no standards for ventilation um, there are no standards for for busing, um, even though there are there are industry-wide, um, clear, well-supported, scientifically supported standards for things like ventilation, um, they're checking the maintenance records of, of the school ventilation system. That doesn't, you know, that doesn't tell us anything about whether or not that, that classroom is going to be uh, sufficiently de-risked.
0: Todd, uh, the clock is ticking. Uh, boy, I, I just want everybody to be safe, and I want everybody to get these answers before they have to make a decision. An informed decision would be helpful. Harvey, thanks for the time today. We'll stay in touch and see what uh, the province does. I guess the Premier's got another announcement at one o'clock today, so we'll follow that. Take care. Thanks, Bill. Harvey Bischoff, president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, echoing the sentiments we've heard from a lot of parents and uh, teaching groups about uh, going back to school. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML.